Hello and welcome to MedTalk, which is a medical revision podcast run for medical students. My name is Depeche and I'm a third year medical student at UWA. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Razavi, who is a consultant ophthalmologist at Lion's Eye and head of ophthalmology teaching here at UWA. Welcome, Dr. Razavi. Thanks, Depeche. Thanks for having me. So today we are going through diabetic retinopathy. So the case history is you are seeing a uh, patient whose name is Mr. John, a 55-year-old Indigenous man with a 20-year history of type 2 diabetes mellitus who has previously been lost to follow-up. He informs you of a one-month history of visual loss in the right eye. He is not aware of any other significant past medical history and he takes metformin for his type 2 diabetes mellitus. He's also unsure of his HbA1c. His mother and his brother both have type 2 diabetes mellitus and chronic kidney disease for which they are on dialysis. And he's unsure of the medical history on his father's side. He also has a 30-pack year smoking history um, but has given up two years ago. So, Dr. Ozavi, having heard that history, um, could you run us through the salient features that you would expect students to pick up on? Yeah, sure. So, first of all, guys, I want to say congratulations on getting the Alumni Fund uh, grant for this excellent project that you're running. I think it's a really useful exercise which will help other students. Um, look, this is a good case. This is, a, this is some real-life stuff that I see in my clinical practice. Um, usually, with a well-written stem for a question, uh, everything that's in there is meaningful. So you really need to pick up on everything. So the first thing is he's 55 and he's had diabetes for a while. So the biggest predictor of diabetic eye disease is the duration of diabetes. Okay. The next biggest predictor is the control of the diabetes. He's unsure of his HbA1c, so we're sort of in the dark. Um, he's an Indigenous person, and unfortunately we know that the rates and severity of diabetic eye disease in Australia are higher for Indigenous compared to non-Indigenous Australians, and that's been borne out by multiple surveys, and there are various reasons for that. So these are all risk factors and, and little flags, if you like. The next thing is it's a one-month history, so it's not sudden visual loss, which makes you think of a couple of things. It's more like um, gradual. Uh, uh, so that makes me think of a couple of different differentials. He's got family on dialysis, which indicates pretty advanced diabetes. Um, doesn't sound like he's on dialysis necessarily, but you'd probably want to check and confirm that and see if there's any renal function. Renal function, again, is predictive of diabetic eye disease. He's an ex-smoker. He smoked a fair bit. Smoking affects the eyes. Thankfully, he's quit, but again, these are, these are all risk factors. What, what you'd want to do next is, is further history and examination. Yeah. Sure. So mm. moving on to physical examination, mm. uh, we see that the patient is overweight. He has a BMI of 27, and his visual acuity is 6 on 30 for the right eye and 6 on 6 for the left. Moving on to retinal examination, it reveals microaneurysms, hard ac exudates, and a suspicion of a thickening at the right macula. So having heard that examination, mm -hmm. and we've heard some of the key diagnostic features that you've mentioned for history, mm. um, could you do the same for the 
physical examination sure. findings. Yeah, yeah. So this is a good description of of both systemic and ocular findings. He's got a high BMI. Uh, he's got moderate visual impairment in the right eye at 6 over 30. Excellent vision in the left eye at 6 over 6. What I'd want to... What you always want to clarify with visual acuity is if, if it was with visual aids on or unaided. So that's good to clarify with whoever did the examination. Was pinhole used? If pinhole was used, did it make any difference? You know, those sort of finer points. And that'll tell you if he needs glasses, which is the single most correctable cause of visual impairment in Australia. Believe it or not, most recent surveys still show that glasses are the simplest way to improve people's eyesight. And many people don't have the glasses they need. So a bit of clarification around the vision. Just going back a step to, to history before I go on with the retinal examination. So we've got the duration of his diabetes, but the other things that you'd want to know uh, are to chase up and see if you can find an HbA1c. If not, do one. Um, get a blood pressure. That's a predictor of diabetic retinopathy. Uh, get serum lipids. See if he's had one done or do them. Um, and also renal function. So those four things would be important to track down. Coming back to the retinal examination, so he's got microaneurysms, he's got hard exudates, and it, he appears to have possible thickening of the right macula. So this fits with the sort of gradual change in vision that he's had over a period of a month. In reality, it's probably longer than a month. He's noticed it in the last month when it's become really bad. Um, Important to note that 6 over 30 doesn't meet the driving standard in his right eye. His left eye does. And for a private driver's license, you only need one good eye. Good means 6, 9 or better. So this man could drive. But what you want to tell him is if your left eye gets to worse than 6, 9, you won't be able to drive. Very important, right, for most people. Based on the signs that have been described, microaneurysms and hard exudates this is beyond mild diabetic retinopathy mild diabetic retinopathy is microaneurysms only this is at least moderate and you'd want to closer examine him to see if it's severe or proliferative diabetic retinopathy and i'd be very suspicious that he's got macular edema in the right eye he's got hard exudates in the macula it appears thickened it fits with the clinical history so that would be my main thought at the moment Sure. So at this point, uh, what else are your um, other differentials? The main one with macular edema, um, with or without hard exudates, is a retinal vein occlusion. And he's got risk factors, again, that include his age, smoking history, his BMI. You, you need to know blood pressure. Blood pressure is actually the most important risk factor for retinal vein occlusions. Um, a, retinal vein <coughs> a retinal vein occlusion can mimic diabetic retinopathy and when it happens it tends to be very asymmetric so let's say in his good eye he'd have minimal findings and his right eye in in the bad eye he'd have hemorrhages and exudates and macular thickening uh, and the pattern of those signs in a retinal vein occlusion tends to follow the blood vessels and to follow the course of what we call the nerve fiber layer the nerve fiber layer runs in a sort of parabolic course on the retina so they're not random hemorrhages they, they sort of follow a pattern so that that would be my other sort of main differential 
Okay, so if we could focus on um, diabetic retinopathy mm-hmm. for the moment, yeah. um, could you run us through uh, the definitions and the criterias for diabetic retinopathy and sure. its different severities? Yeah. So the first thing is to have diabetic retinopathy, you have to have a definite diagnosis of diabetes. So often we'll put up a slide of a, of a fundus, let's say, a picture of a retina, and there'll be some blood on there and people will say, oh, it's diabetic retinopathy. Well, you can't know that unless you've checked random blood and HbA1c and so on. So it's a disease that happens in people with known diabetic uh, disease. Uh, and then it's a microangiopathy. So it's a microangiopathy affecting the retinal vessels in people with a known diagnosis of diabetes mellitus. That's the definition. Um, and then you have various severities, which I can talk about now if you like, the criteria or the classification. So you want to think about diabetic retinopathy in terms of two separate buckets, if you like. The first bucket is uh, classifying the severity. The second bucket, which is separate to the first one, is to confirm the presence or absence of diabetic macular edema. So you want to say, this man has this severity of diabetic retinopathy with diabetic macular edema or without diabetic macular edema in this eye. And obviously they can be quite different in one person. They can have different grades in in each eye. So if we think about the severity bucket first, that bucket you split into two parts. The first part is non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy or NPDR. The second part is proliferative diabetic retinopathy, or PDR. Proliferative diabetic retinopathy means you have neovascularization somewhere in the eye. Usually it's in the retina, but bad diabetics can get it in the front of the eye on the iris as well. So that's proliferative disease, lots of ischemia, driving up vascular endothelial growth factor and other cytokines in the eye, which eventually lead to retinal neovascular vessels. Non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, we grade as mild, moderate, and severe. That's the simplest way to to grade it. Or absent, actually. We should really start with absent. Uh, Mild, and the the simplest way to think about it is mild means microaneurysms. Severe, there's a 4-2-1 rule. Four being four quadrants of intraretinal, of retinal hemorrhages. So microaneurysm is a red pinpoint dot a hemorrhage is bigger than that and in the old days we used to call them dot and blot hemorrhages now i don't care whether it's a dot or a blot if it's not a fine pinpoint red thing then it's a hemorrhage it's not a microaneurysm if you've got four quadrants of of hemorrhages or you've got two quadrants of venous beading now venous beading means if you've ever seen a string of sausages where there's a pinch in between each sausage That's what venous beating looks like. The veins start to look like a string of sausages, if you like. And that's an effect of ischemia over a a period of time. So two quadrants of venous beating or one quadrant of what we call IRMA, intraretinal microvascular abnormalities. For medical students, I wouldn't worry about IRMA. IRMA is difficult to see without a fundus lens and a slit lamp. And unless you're an ophthalmologist or an optician or have a very strong interest in ophthalmology, you're probably not going to do that. So I'd focus on the extent of hemorrhages and um, the presence or absence of venous beating. So that's severe non-proliferative. 
everything in between mild and severe is moderate. So if you've got microaneurysms plus heart exudates without venous beating and not too many hemorrhages, that's moderate. If you've got microaneurysms and cotton wool spots, which you can get in diabetes sometimes, in the absence of the severe signs, that's moderate. Uh, and I mean, I could go on, but, but you get what I'm saying. Sure. Diabetic retinopathy is quite mm -hmm. um, prevalent in yeah. uh, society, especially yeah. in Australia. Yeah. Um, could you run us through the epidemiology and how it might differ from Indigenous and non-Indigenous yeah. populations as yeah. well? Yep. So in general terms, a third of people with diabetes will have diabetic retinopathy. A third of people with diabetic retinopathy will have vision-threatening diabetic retinopathy. So of... 100% of the diabetic population, it works out to about 10% who are at risk of vision loss today. Of the other 90%, if they're not screened and monitored, they're at risk of losing vision down the track as well. Diabetic retinopathy is a silent disease. This is what we need to be telling all our patients. In the early to moderate stages and even in the severe stages sometimes, I've got a lady right now with proliferative diabetic retinopathy in both eyes the proliferative diabetic retinopathy is so bad that it's not only neovascularization at the back of the eye, it's at the front of the eye, and it's caused what we call neovascular glaucoma, which means it's clogged up the drainage angle of the eye, so her pressures are shot up to 50. Now, this is really bad diabetes. This is kind of like the end of the road. Her vision is 6 over 9. She's seeing 6 9. She can drive legally right now. So diabetic retinopathy can be silent until the day it blinds you. And so the message to patients is, if you have diabetes, you need to be screened at least twice a year. Any signs of di diabetic retinopathy, it's more often than that. And if you're an indigenous person, it's once a year, irrespective of the severity of the disease. That was a long-winded answer, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's great. <laughs> I guess if we could return to the case now. Mm -hmm. Um, so we've run through the history, the physical examination, and you run through some of the investigations that you would like mm. to add on. Mm. Are there any other um, uh, investigations that you would like to do? Yeah. So just to recap, I guess, the basics. The basics is I want an HbA1c on this person. I want to know their blood pressure. I want to know their renal function. Uh, I want to know their serum lipids. Um and they're the main things. If there's marked uh, sort of asymmetry between the two eyes with a particular pattern of hemorrhages, then I would think about a carotid Doppler ultrasound. There's a condition called ocular ischemic syndrome, which can give you a sort of hemorrhagic retinopathy, uh, but tends to be very asymmetric. That's probably a decision for an ophthalmologist to make, but if a non-ophthalmologist is examining the patient, they can certainly prompt that idea. Uh, or if they're very confident, do a carotid ultrasound. It's a non-invasive test. So they're the, they're the first-line uh, tests. That are, the first-line ones are the, are the basics, the HbA1c, the, the UNEs, the, the blood pressure, and the lipids. Uh, second line, I would think about carotid Doppler ultrasonography if I thought it was indicated. Sure. If we were to think about um, the management for this patient, mm -hmm. uh, would you mind running through the pharmacological and non-pharmacological therapies? Yeah. yeah. So we, as ophthalmologists, we think of managing diabetic patients in terms of ocular and systemic management. 
So the evidence for systemic management is that you want to aim for an HbA1c of 7 or less, okay, without toppling patients into hypoglycemia. There's many ways to do that. There's new drugs on the market. There's ways of, you know, the, the uh, devices which people can strap to their arms, which can be monitoring their blood sugars. Um, so the principle is aiming for an HbA1c of 7 or lower. We tend to leave that to GPs and endocrinologists generally, depending on how severe the diabetic retinopathy is. Uh, blood pressure, you're aiming for a, uh, an ideal of 120 over 70 to 80, okay? They're the sort of current practice guidelines. And lipids you wanna have below the higher end of 5.5, particularly the LDLs. That's the sort of systemic management, if you like. This guy's BMI is a bit high, just sounds like he needs to be a bit healthier. Ocular management uh, really depends on the severity of the disease and the presence or absence of diabetic macular edema. The principles generally are laser treatment for proliferative diabetic retinopathy, if we think about severity, and intravitreal treatment, which means injections for diabetic macular edema. And there's various things that we inject, various drugs that we inject. You can do a form of laser for some forms of diabetic macular edema as well. So laser has a role for severity. Laser has a role for diabetic macular edema, depending on what type of edema it is. And that's, that's a decision for ophthalmologists. Uh, and then there's intravitreal treatment for diabetic macular edema. Sure. Would you mind running through as well um, in the setting of a GP when it would be advisable to refer to ophthalmology? Look, any patient with visual changes, so definitely this guy. Um, but if you step back, any patient with diabetes needs to be seen by an eye care person, whether it's an ophthalmologist or an optometrist. Uh, optometrists have become very good at screening people with earlier or milder stages of disease, um, especially if, they have, if they're well connected with ophthalmologists. Um, so anybody with diabetes should be getting their eyes checked. Non-indigenous at least every two years, indigenous every year, and either one of those categories, if they've got eye disease, it's probably gonna be more frequent than that. Sure. So diabetic retinopathy, as prevalent as it is, we see it mm. in GP practice, we see it on our ophthalm rotations. Yep. Um, could you tell us what specifically you would look for in um, for third and fourth year medical students when approaching diabetic retinopathy? Yeah. The first one is if you've got a diabetic person in front of you or a question about one, don't forget the eyes. So they often just, you know, we think about nephropathy or neuropathy, don't forget the retinopathy. Um, that's the first thing. Make sure they're connected to an optometrist or an, or an ophthalmologist. Uh, apart from that, everybody needs to know how to do a good visual acuity. So how to do a visual acuity properly and then record it properly. Um, and probably the final things I'd say are the two buckets that I talked about. So the severity bucket, NPDR and PDR, and then the presence or absence of diabetic macular edema. So to be able to talk about those things sensibly. Sure. Yeah. Great. And I guess to round out, um, there's a lot of research going on in diabetic mm. retinopathy. Yeah. Could you tell us some of the advances that are occurring yeah. in this field? Yeah. So the intravitreal injections... Uh, sort of changing all the time. There's lots of work going on in that space. Um, 
most of the intraventricular injections are anti-vascular endothelial growth factor. And there are a few of them on the market. Currently, there's two um, right now on the PBS. And there's another one that's used off-label. Uh, there's a new drug that will likely come online this year. It's very close to that already, uh, which has a longer duration of action. So when you're doing injections for diabetic macular edema, when you start treating these people, injections are one month apart. So it's quite a lot of visits. So ideally, you want a drug that lasts longer so that injections can be two months apart or three months apart. So there's a new drug that will, as I say, will come onto the market this year, most likely. It's called BioView, and uh, that's in addition to the existing ones that are called Lucentis and Ilea. They're, these are all anti-VEGF agents. Avastin is a drug that's used off-label that works very well. That's also an anti-VEGF agent. And then there's a drug called Osudex, which is a dexamethasone implant, which is a steroid, which also works well for diabetic macular edema particularly some types of diabetic macular edema. So they're the main things, and the new one is BioView. So we're all very keen to see how long BioView lasts and if it can reduce the number of injections that a patient needs. Sure. Yeah. Dr. Azavi, are there any other x-ray resources that students could use to look up uh, information about diabetic retinopathy? Uh, look, I'm probably biased, but uh, myself and a few other people have created a website called Eyeballs Made Easy, which I think you guys are aware of. So there's a lecture on there specifically about diabetic retinopathy, plus lots of other resources. We're shooting more videos this Friday. So hopefully this becomes a good resource for UWA and other students going forward. Once again, I want to say congrats on the excellent grant that you've won. Well done. Excellent initiative and, and good luck with it. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Azavi, for running through this case with us and, um, and uh, enlightening us. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you very much. Sure. Dr. Very welcome. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find this episode as well as all our other episodes and their transcripts on our website, www.medtalkpod.com. You can also like us on Facebook, www.facebook.com forward slash medtalkpod to stay updated about all the new episodes and any new learning resources. You can also send us episode ideas and feedback on our website or our email, medtalkpod at outlook.com.